This morning we have been emphatic about praising the spectacular greatness of our God. That is the one true and living God. The reason the greatness of our God has been especially central in our worship is because in our passage, we are confronted with a riotous mob chanting that is attributing greatness to a false God for two straight hours. In contrast, our desire as the people of God has been to ascribe all glory and honor and majesty to the only being worthy of praise, namely the Lord our God. Now, there are many reasons why a person or a mass of thousands of people for that matter might come to believe that someone other than God is is worship worthy. And I guess from the perspective of evil, the actual reasons really don't matter all that much as long as God is robbed of the glory due his name and due his name alone. The situation in Ephesus that we'll see in just a moment reminds me of the way Uncle Wormwood closes one of his letters to his demon nephew in C.S. Lewis's famous book, The Screwtape Letters. Here he kind of pulls back the curtain on their strategy of evil, and he writes, get people to believe something not because it's true, but for some other reason. That's the game. That is the strategy. That is the plan. Now, the most striking aspect of today's passage is the chaotic scene that unfolds in this enormous outdoor theater in Ephesus. But the most insightful elements of our passage are found in the the spoken words of a silversmith and of a town clerk. It is their speeches that reveal the human heart. The degree to which the people are so entrenched in sin and therefore blinded to the truth that they could not see the greatness of the glory of the one true and living God. Our passage is Ephesians 19, 21 through 41. Recall last week in the first part of the chapter when we looked at the revival in Ephesus that We saw the glorious ministry of the Holy Spirit at work. And we witnessed seven Jewish exorcists who came to understand the untamable power of the Lord Jesus Christ in a dramatic way. The second half of chapter 19, brothers and sisters, is no less dramatic. Hear then the word of Almighty God from Ephesians 19, beginning in verse 21. Okay, we'll read from Acts 19. <laughs> it is pretty funny because so many times this week I turned to Ephesians and I kept going, where are we? Where am I? Where am I? Hear then the word of God from Acts 19, beginning in verse 21, in reference to Ephesus. 
Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion and and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess, If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. So Lord, now... I pray that you would do an absolute miracle among us. That is, that you would help us to see more clearly than we ever have the unique greatness of your glory that you alone possess. And I pray that it would lead us to worship and obedience. And I ask this through the name of our beloved Lord Jesus. Amen. So the idea that I want us to think hard about today is that Jesus is worth anything we risk to share him. 
and whatever it costs to follow him. Now, I'm thinking of two groups of people at the same time in this idea. I'm addressing, on the one hand, those who are among us who may be hesitant to share the good news about Jesus Christ with others for for whatever the reason, and those who may be sitting on the fence in terms of fully committing to Jesus and being obedient to him, led by his spirit and trusting in him by faith. Because Jesus is infinitely valuable, he is worth anything we risk to share him and whatever it costs to follow him. Now, our passage this morning breaks out fairly neatly into four sections, and I want to just ask and answer one question for each of these parts. In our opening couple of verses, I want to ask, why, why must Paul also see Rome? That's taken straight out of the text, and it's the, it's the most interesting aspect of this particular section. But why is that the case? In 23 through 27, we want to look at the specific truth that causes chaos in Ephesus. And it's really somewhat surprising. And then we want to look at how the people respond to that truth in 28 through 34. And then finally, consider the clerk's words and ask, are they calming words or condemning words or both as the case may be? Now, in our opening verses, we find Paul just kind of thinking through where he is heading next in terms of his missionary ventures and spreading the gospel. He sends two of his companions into Macedonia, uh, probably to help facilitate the offering that was being collected there in in the churches in that region uh, so that it could be sent to Jerusalem and those that were suffering there. But the most intriguing issue here is that after he goes to Jerusalem, he believes that he must go to Rome. Why is that the case? According to verse 21, it appears that Paul has resolved by the Holy Spirit and in his spirit to testify about Jesus in Rome. Paul's confidence that this was the will of Jesus for him is confirmed by the thoughts that he expresses near the end of his letter to the Romans. He says in 15 and verse 29, I know that when I come to you, I will come with the fullness of the blessing of Christ. Several passages over the next Really, a couple of chapters of Acts also confirm that Paul will need to go to Rome, not the least of which is Acts 23 and verse 11, because he's in another situation where violence breaks out all around him. And we read, the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, take courage, for you have testified about the facts regarding me in Jerusalem and you must all tes- also testify about them in Rome. And then we also know from the end of the book of Romans that Paul has visions after Rome to head on to Spain and even beyond. What I want us to consider this morning is what does God have next for you personally? Where is he leading you? How is he leading you? So I, I know that 
COVID has made us all just kind of feel like we're just stuck for a while. But, but we're really not on pause and we're really not in a holding pattern, right? We need to be actively, even now, thinking about how is God leading us? What does he have next? What does he have next for us individually? What does he have next for us as families? What does he have next for us as the family of God? So, so let's commit to each other, where, whether we're praying about that as families together, whether we're praying about that in growth groups, whether we as a corporate body are praying about those things, let's be asking the Lord what he desires next of us. Because we need to be asking these types of questions. Who does the Lord want you to reach out to perhaps today? Perhaps before you leave this room or as soon as you do leave this room? Or in what direction is God leading your family? That could mean any number of things. But, but that's important to discuss as a family. Is there a ministry that the Lord desires for you to serve in now? Either at the church or in our community? There's nothing that we need to wait for. There really is no obstacle. If God is leading us, then we need to be obedient to that and to the prompting of his spirit. Or, or maybe it's not localized. I mean, Paul wanted to go to Rome, and then he wanted to go to Spain, and then he wanted to go literally to the ends of the earth. So maybe it's not localized in Blount County. It could be, but maybe God wants you to take the gospel to Bangladesh or to Belarus, or to Barcelona. I mean, Paul didn't make it to Spain, but that doesn't mean that you can't for the sake of the gospel. I, th I think it's pleasing to the Lord for us to be in a continuous and an active posture, asking him, seeking him, Lord, what do you desire of me? What do you desire of us? And let's talk that through together. Paul was very aware of his mortality, but he was also continuously and fervently seeking the Lord on how he could finish well. I mean, Paul didn't know if he had days or weeks or years left, but he was going to maximize every one of those opportunities. So, so let's heed his exhortation that he gave to the believers in Ephesus. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. And so Paul was on his way to Rome. Where is he leading you next? About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that God's made with hands, are not gods. What is incredible to me about this passage is how, how thoroughly entrenched the people are in their belief system 
So much so that they couldn't fathom the, the very obvious truth that Paul is putting before them. Here we're asking the question, what is the truth that caused chaos in Ephesus? What did Paul declare to them that was so earth-shattering, that was so stronghold-demolishing? What was the fire-breathing message that Paul proclaimed? That gods made with hands are not gods. And this set off chaos in the city. Now, we might be tempted to somewhat smirk at that reality when we consider the situation, but we know full well this is not a problem that died 2,000 years ago. Even today, people are so committed to what they want to be true that they are almost sometimes incapable of seeing just very obvious truths. For example, the universe is, is so magnificently ordered, so precise, so glorious, so spectacular, it practically cries out that it was created by a being that is so intelligent, it's unfathomable. That is as plain as day. Or, depending on what circles you walk, believe it or not, this is actually controversial. People are morally different than animals. But some people are confused about that today. Or, life begins at conception. And if it doesn't, then when does it begin? Or an unborn baby is obviously more than a cluster of cells. It is more than an appendage. It's a baby. It's obvious. We can see it. We have pictures and can observe it through video. We know what we're doing. No one can hide from this truth. Or... An atheist shouldn't be the chief chaplain at Harvard. Talk about outsmarting yourselves in the Ivy League. You can't make this stuff up. Or men and women are different. And praise God that they are. Men can't become women, nor can women become men. For all of human history until five years ago, that was blatantly obvious to everyone. And it is still blatantly obvious to scientists because the biology is non-negotiable. Or, gods made with hands are not gods. Could anything be more obvious than that? Now, we should have exceeding compassion towards those who are confused about some of these issues because they are heart-wrenching. But we should not feel one ounce of compulsion to agree with ideas that are blatantly false. Ever. No matter who is trying to convince us that they are true. 
As one famous 19th century philosopher put it, sometimes people don't want to hear the truth because they don't want their illusions destroyed. They could have said that yesterday, and it would have been 100% as true. What we learn about Demetrius in our, in our passage is that he did not want to lose his lucrative business. He and the others made just these kind of mini statues or replicas of Artemis and sold them as souvenirs to those who visited the temple to see where she was worshipped or came to the temple to worship. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, you cannot serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other or you will be devoted to one and you will despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money, Matthew 6.24. But as Demetrius and his, his fellow silversmiths proved, you can serve both false gods and money. There's compatible idols. It works perfectly. In fact, he made a point to closely link their work with the glory of Artemis. He's essentially arguing that the glory of Artemis, that is his God, will be diminished if they are not able to sell souvenirs that look like her. But can you imagine how ridiculous that sounds to the one who is God? Well, we don't have to imagine that. He tells us exactly what he does think about it. For example, in Psalm 115, speaking of the nations that served hand-carved gods, God says, their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see, they have ears but do not hear, noses that do not smell, they have hands but do not feel, feet, but do not walk, and they do not make a, a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. In other words, they become lifeless and spiritually worthless. It's the same argument in Jeremiah 2. Or from, from chapter 44 of the, of, of the prophet Isaiah, in reference to man, God says through his prophet, he plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel. He takes a part of it and he warms himself. He kindles a fire and he bakes bread. Also, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the half he eats meat, he roasts it and is satisfied. Also, he warms himself and says, ah, I'm warm. And the rest of it, he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, deliver me, for you are my god. No one considers, the Lord says. No one considers, nor is there knowledge or, or even discernment to say, half of it I burned in the fire. I also baked bread on its coals. I roasted meat and I have eaten. And shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? 
He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray, and he cannot deliver himself or say, is there not a lie in my right hand? This is how ridiculous idolatry looks to the one who is God. Now, we may not be so crass in our idolatry as to bow down to a block of wood, God forbid. But, but let's think through Demetrius' concern together for a moment. Is he not, at least in part, concerned that Paul's message will affect his ability to provide for his family? And that if his job is taken away, it will make his life less comfortable and perhaps hurt his long-term financial security? All of a sudden, that doesn't sound so crazy. If all Demetrius had to do to keep his career was to ignore the truth, then his situation all of a sudden sounds a lot more like a corporate atmosphere in 2021 or perhaps a school system than it sounds like just a first century problem about idolatry. May God, may our God give us much wisdom, brothers and sisters, as we, as we wade through the very murky waters of our own cultural challenges. Sometimes the answers aren't easy. Sometimes they're very clear. It just may come with a cost. May our daily lives serve as a living witness that Jesus is worth anything we have to risk in order to share truth about him, whether that's financial security or reputation or, or maybe even relationships. And... May we live in such a way that the infinite worth of Jesus is far greater to us than any cost of following him. When they heard this, that is the message that Paul was proclaiming, they were enraged. And they were crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with confusion, and they, they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, and some of you might have a, a note down at the bottom just describing who they are, just high-ranking officers of the province of, of, of Asia where they lived, where Ephesus was. Probably they were liaisons to the Roman government. Uh, so very important people, but it's fascinating to see the influence that God gave Paul even in the midst of these various government leaders. We also see that his friends urged him not to venture into the theater. The disciples wouldn't let him go. So in a sense, we see God's provision through others here, even in Paul's life, possibly even protecting him from his own zeal 
Everyone else said, Paul, (laughs) they will kill you. The, the, the situation was so chaotic that some cried out one thing, some another, and the assembly was in confusion. Most of the people there didn't know why they had come together at all. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized he was a Jew, the reason he probably wanted to say something is because he probably wanted to put distance between the Jews, and the Christians. In other words, to say, look, don't blame us for this. This is 100% on Paul in the way. This is not about us. But the people that were there were having none of it. They could see the link between Judaism and the Messiah, even if Alexander wanted to deny it. So they cried out for two hours with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. It's a stunning scene to contemplate. Probably 20,000 or 23,000 people who could fit in the outdoor theater. This is a theater still standing today. You can, you can go there if you so desired In fact, it's fascinating. It's still functioning. Uh, Someone was telling me in between services that she lived uh, in this region when she was growing up, and the local high schools would hold their graduation still in this theater. She said, "You you could stand on the platform there, and you could hear somebody, you could stand up on the top row and hear somebody whispering, just talking in a very calm voice on that platform. So so perfect are the acoustics of that place, and it could hold more than 20,000 people. But note a couple of things about the responses of the people. They're fervent, but they're enraged. There's confusion because they're saying different things. There certainly is no clear-headed unity about their purpose. If you are going to oppose God you better be crystal clear why you think that's a good idea and not get swept up in the masses. People every day drift to hell and they don't even know why. But perhaps the most striking feature of this section is the, is the just maniacal way the people rush to the defense of their God. In honor-shame cultures, and and with religions in particular, to dishonor another person's deity is is to potentially put your very life at risk. Further, in these cultures, to think of, of God or any of the gods experiencing either shame or serving human beings is deeply offensive, if not utterly inconceivable. So then, let's contrast these man-made ideas of what God is like or gods are like with the reality of who God has actually revealed himself to be in his word. God's glory is utterly unique. 
Remember the former things of old, for I am God. There is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. Isaiah 46 and verse 9. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me, since I appointed an ancient people. Let them declare what is to come and what will happen. God is awesome at smack talk. You think you know the future? You think you can control things? Put it before me. Let's see what happens. Let's see who's right. Isaiah 44 and verse 7. There is only one God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, Deuteronomy 6.4. For us, there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we exist. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we exist, 1 Corinthians 8 and verse 6. God is eternal and powerful. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come. The Almighty, Revelation 1.8. God knows everything. Do you know the balancing of the clouds? The wondrous works of him who is perfect in knowledge, Job 37. Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure, Psalm 147 and verse 5. And God's glory is impeccably holy. The Lord said to Moses, I will cause all my goodness to pass before you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. But he added, you cannot see my face, for no one can see me and live. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory, proclaim the angelic beings. God is utterly self-sufficient, and therefore, he doesn't need to be served by anyone. If I were hungry, would I tell you? For the world and its fullness are mine, Psalm 50 and verse 12. Who has given to me that I should repay him? Everything under heaven is mine, Job 41. And God defends his people. He doesn't need anyone to defend the honor of his name. No one can challenge him. No one can even approach him. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to it and are safe. Proverbs 18, for the Lord your God is he who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies, to save you, Deuteronomy 20. And the Lord said to Moses, tell your brother Aaron not to enter freely into the most holy place behind the veil in front of the mercy seat on the ark or else he will die because I appear in the cloud above the mercy seat. Leviticus 16, 2. God simply is. He said to Moses, I am who I am. And yet, the glory of the gospel is that this glorious, spectacular, unique God chose to be dishonored. Yeah. 
to redeem a people for himself. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, by his wounds, you have been healed. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. God's son humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And honor, shame, culture has no category for this whatsoever. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to offer his life, praise God, as a ransom for many. This is the God who reveals himself in this book. In contrast to the God of the Bible, the greatness of Artemis has as much chance of diminishing or threatening or marring the glory of God as a a single speck of dust has of extinguishing the sun. She is as nothing to him. In light of the greatness of who God is, and in light of the goodness of what Jesus has accomplished for us, Think clearly, he is worth anything we might risk to share him. And he is worth whatever it costs to follow him. And when the town clerk had had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis? And of the sacred stone that fell from the sky. A meteor or something had fallen in that region about that time. And they took that as a sign from the gods. uh, Some kind of apologetic for their beliefs or something. And and moved it into the temple of Artemis. And it was one of the draws for crowds. They could come and see this rock that fell from the sky. And the Ephesians thought of themselves as stewards of this sacred stone and of the temple of Artemis. But seeing that these things cannot be denied, that is that everyone knows they're the keeper of the temple, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash, for you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious or blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against you, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly, for we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said this, he dismissed the assembly. So the threat of Rome needing to come in and calm things down was enough to get everyone else's attention. The question that we're asking here is, even though the town clerk's logic 
was used by God to diffuse this situation. And so he calms the dissension. The question I want to ask is, is that all that's going on here? Or are his words also condemning of the people? When the clerk assures the people that neither they nor their goddess is in danger, we need to think outside of this immediate context and realize that that is a warning. There is a warning embedded in his words for, are you in danger? If you're worshiping a false god fervently and undeniably, The Bible talks about people called Cretans who are from Crete and says that all Cretans are liars. Patrick mentioned a few weeks ago that, that to be called a Corinthian was not a compliment to your sexual purity or to your, your, your moral fortitude. And here we see in our passage that the Ephesians were world-renowned for their idolatry. They guarded the temple zealously, but zeal without knowledge is not good. But of course, that's not how they saw it. But, but here's what I want us to see in the words of the town clerk. The reality is that they are condemned by the way that they are characterized. And that's something that we should think hard about also in our own lives. How are we characterized as the people of God or as individuals? What is the reputation of River Oaks out in our community? For we claim to belong to God. We say every week that God meets among us when we gather and that his spirit lives within us. How are we characterized out in the community? Or how are we as, individual, as individuals characterized? How are we characterized by our speech? How would others describe the way that we talk? How would we be characterized in terms of the way that we handle disappointment? Or when we are angry? What excites us? What repulses us morally? How would someone characterize what we are passionate about as individuals or as a church? Now, ultimately, we need to be more concerned about our identity in Christ, much more than our reputation before others. But the way that we are characterized does tell us something about how we are perceived, whether that's for good or for evil. In context, despite this characterization of them as world-famous idolaters, is there, any, is there any other way to say it? The town clerk told them to keep quiet. Later, he tells them there's no cause we can give to justify this commotion. Now, that may be true in the very narrow context that he's talking about. 
But is that true in the bigger picture? Anything that they anything that they committed to would justify turning from an idol to the living God. Paul's words, as, as simple as they were and as profound as they are, were a declaration of war on the idol that they worshipped. So there's a sense in which all the craziness is in fact justified. But we want to think carefully, spiritually, about this. They had an opportunity to embrace the gospel, to embrace the truth about God, because they were sent home, but they were sent home condemned before God. But if you see this, if you yourself see the need to put your faith in the truth, that is the one true God and the reality of the gospel message, or, <clears throat> or if you know someone that needs to hear this truth and submit to this truth, then take a step of faith today. And obey what God is calling you to do because Jesus is worth anything we might risk to share the good news about him with others. And Jesus' infinite worth is greater than any cost to follow him. May God be glorified both now and forevermore. Amen. Lord, would you, would you move among your people? <clears throat> even as we have been singing this morning, even as we have asked in prayer, and even as we have now worshipped by submitting our souls to the truth of your word, we now desire as an expression of our fidelity to you and our love for you, to praise your name. For you and you alone are worthy of worship. So would you now move among us so that we might praise you as the maker of all things and we might praise you as the redeemer of those who have placed faith in your blessed son. And it's in his name we pray, amen.